you recently had a new discovering with the pyramids, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's very exciting. It's the relationship of the pyramids and why the builders chose the slope angles that they chose. Really double bad. Whoa. Right? There's a lot of this inbred stuff in the Egyptian stories, right? Okay. So they married their brothers and married their sisters and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of like Alabama. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we are here with a legend today, Robert Edward Grant in the building. How's it going, man? I'm doing great. Good to be here with you, Sean. Yeah, I'm excited to talk sacred geometry, pyramids, and you recently had a new discovering with the pyramids, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's very exciting. It's the relationship of the pyramids and why the builders chose the slope angles that they chose. Mm. But we can get into that as deep as you like when you want to get into it. But uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, and we were talking earlier, you mentioned there's over 300 pyramids just in Egypt, right? Yes, there are. Uh, in fact, there's almost 200 of them just in the southern part of Egypt as well, down by the border of Sudan, wow. in a place called Bir Tawil. Um, and, and these, they're called the Mero pyramids, but they're very sharp and pointy pyramids. And then we have the pyramids that are in the north part of Egypt, which is what's called Lower Egypt. So Upper Egypt would be South Egypt because it's higher in elevation. Mm. And Lower Egypt as it sort of, the Nile River starts to empty out into the Mediterranean area. Wow. All of it is the backbone of Osiris. Osiris. So what is Osiris? Osiris is a Greek god. Oh, sorry, not, he was also a Greek god. Many would basically associate him with Dionysus and also sometimes Zeus. But he was an Egyptian god in the Egyptian pantheon. And he was famous because he was the head of all the gods in the Egyptian mythology, mythology story. Hmm. And in that story, he had an affair with his brother's wife. Right, so not necessarily the coolest thing to do. <laughs> right, so he has an affair with his brother's wife. His brother, who was not as cool as he was, uh, didn't have you know the looks, didn't have the fame, didn't have all the same stuff. Well, his wife fell in love with with Osiris, and it happened to also be Osiris's wife's sister. So that's really double bad. Whoa. Right. There's a lot of this inbred stuff in the Egyptian stories, right? Okay. So they married their brothers and married their sisters and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of like Alabama. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said Arkansas. Sure. Anyway, but the point is that when you go back and look at the story, what happened was Set, his brother, where we get the word Satan from, mm. Set, his brother him, right, as a sort of, uh, you know, blood vendetta to kill his brother for having had an affair with his wife and she got pregnant with their son Anubis, right? And so so basically he kills Osiris, cuts him into 14 parts so wow. he could not resurrect and come back to life because after all he was a god. So they wanted to cut him up and basically, you know, strewn the parts all over all over the land. And uh, and the wife Isis and her sister Nephthys, who was in love with Osiris, decide to go and try to find all the parts of his body to put him back together again. Those 14 parts, all of them were found except one. The they never found the Now, some believe that the was eaten by the fish in the Nile River. But actually, others believe that Nephthys kept it for herself. And no matter for Isis, because Isis made a new for him, and it was a crystal And the crystal that she made for him was made of quartz crystal and she placed it on him. So when you go to Egypt, you see all these images of Osiris in all the temples mm -hmm. down the Nile, right? You see these images of Osiris laying there with 14 cuts and an erect, which is just the crystal that she fashioned for him. Mm. And from that, he was able to resurrect in the form of Horus, his son. So his wife had with him while he was dead 
And he came back as the reincarnation of his son, Horus, who then went to avenge his father's death. And in the process, in fighting with Set, his uncle, had his left eye taken out. So this is known as the left eye of Horus. Hmm. And what it really is a metaphor of is our loss of our intuitive abilities. The left eye connects to the right brain. The right eye connects to the left brain. The left brain manages, if you're right-handed, all of your rational thought. It manages all of your, like, the things that tell you, no, don't jump off that cliff, you know, into the water beneath. It tells you to be reasonable. It's the logic aspect of your thinking. Mm -hmm. Whereas the right brain is where your creativity comes from. It's where imagination is. It's the feminine aspect of your brain. So when you lose the left eye, you lose the feminine aspect, right? You didn't get into business to run payroll, did you? That's okay, I didn't either. Now there's Gusto. Gusto not only offers payroll, but also benefits, onboarding, and HR all in one place to more than 300,000 businesses. Maybe you want federal, state, and local payroll taxes to be filed automatically no matter where your employers work, or maybe you wanna offer a 401k plan to help your employees save for retirement. Do you have compliance with regulations? Three out of four employers say Gusto makes it easier to be compliant with the government. With Gusto's simple, guided software and user-friendly interface, payroll and HR are no longer exhausting, they are rewarding. Gusto was built for small businesses from the start. Gusto takes the pain out of payroll benefits and HR and puts the joy back into running your business. Gusto also integrates with your favorite tools, tools like QuickBooks, Xero, Google, and more. Want all this and more with no hidden fees? Try it out for three months for free at gusto.com social. That's gusto.com slash social. You've wow. lost the intuitive aspect. So that, of course, then extends to a metaphor for what's happening in the world today. We've got a big world that is completely imbalanced towards a left brain, reductionistic thinking. It's basically all brain and no heart. Mm-hmm. And this is why we have the wars that we have. This is why we have conquering. This is why we have the government structures that we have that all now need to basically transition as the world starts to wake up and go through this heart awakening. Bringing the feminine, this rise of the feminine is not just for feminine empowerment. It's also for all of us recognizing the importance. I'll give you one example of, of a way that we have really suppressed the feminine aspect. The number of days in our year, mm-hmm is 365 days, right? Yeah. Okay. So, but in the Egyptian year, they use 360 days. Hmm. You have any idea why they they cut out the last five days? No. Well, the reason is, is because actually, if you look at the lunar year, the moon year, which is the feminine year, it's 354 days. So when you take the 354 and you take the mean value, the average between the lunar year and the solar year, it comes out exactly to 360 days. So we've only been using, even in something as banal as our calendar, we've only been looking at the male aspect. And this is emblematic of what's been happening in the world today and why the shift is also happening as people start to really wake up this intuitive aspect of themselves. And this is what we call awakening. Interesting. So when is that shift towards the feminine side coming, you think? It's happening right now. Oh, yeah? It is most definitely happening right now for millions of people around the world. Uh, we're all going through this big awakening. 2020 was not just about If you look at the details of, of some of the early research that was done on in January of 2020 uh, got published in Scientific American. And it basically showed that they found DNA strains in 
of two types of snake venom. Hmm. Snake venom. And we thought bats or pangolins or whatever was going on at that time, you know, all the, the story we were being given as a narrative from government. Yeah. Actually, it was snake venom. This was published in Scientific American, one of the top journals in the United States. Now, if you think about that, what were the two types of snakes? One was a king cobra. Mm -hmm. So this is an airborne snake venom. The other snake was an Asian asp. <laughs> so two snakes created the which means crown virus. And it's in the year of 2020 where 2020 vision is supposed to be clear sight. Mm. Wow. I don't know. I used to believe in coincidences. I don't believe in coincidences anymore because every time I actually looked, I found that there was a pattern. And then I realized that what I called randomly previously wasn't random at all. It was simply my inability to perceive the higher order pattern of the simulation that we live in. Interesting. I also listened to you on another show where you and your peers were actually able to predict when was going to happen. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Well, actually, it was kind of interesting because I was in Mexico uh, with, uh, with, with Nassim Haramein, and, um, and I had had this vision at lunch that day. And I said, look, I don't know. I feel like we're going to do some ceremony or something. I have no idea. And I didn't mean like a, you know, psychedelic ceremony or anything like that. <laughs> I just, I had this vision. I said, I saw four of us standing on some platform and I told him who was there. And it was like 12 o'clock that I said this. And then I said, when we go back to Teotihuacan for the afternoon, let's stay up on top of the Pyramid of the Moon and maybe we'll feel called to do something. I don't know. So we stayed up there. I stayed up. We were doing kind of these Instagram and, and, and like Facebook lives from on top of the pyramid. And I looked around and they must have forgot. So they started walking down. So I said, oh, well, we missed the opportunity. I guess it's not going to happen. And I told them I saw myself in the sim on, you know, two of the corners. And then the other two corners were two young women that worked on our team, a woman named Victoria Foster and another one named Andrea Maloney. Mm -hmm. And basically... We went down, and the guy who's the guardian of the Giza Plateau walks up to me before as we're walking to the buses to leave at the end of the day. The sun's coming down. He says, you're not leaving yet. We're going to do something special. And I said, what is this? And I didn't even know this guy. His name is Gorilla. He's like <laughs> the tribal chief of the Toltecs, who's, you know, the guy who manages the entire Teotihuacan Plateau. Wow. And Teotihuacan, just outside Mexico City, is actually another way of saying Tehuti-Huacan. Mm -hmm. Tehuti is another name for Thoth, the Egyptian god who's part of this Osiris story. Mm. When Horus lost his left eye, it was healed eventually by the eye of Thoth. So Thoth fixed his eye. Thoth is the god of wisdom, mm. okay, and brought that wisdom back. So we end up going into this place that I didn't know even existed at Teotihuacan because we hadn't gone there to visit, and he said it was the heart of the feathered serpent, the flying serpent. Now think of Staff of Hermes, and the winged serpents that basically show up on the staff of Hermes. So he asked us to stand on this platform, and then all you know, almost 100 people were standing around us. Mm -hmm. And he said, we've decided to make you and the Sim Toltec shaman of our tribe. And so it was like a two-hour ceremony, and he asked us to stand at the four corners, and he said, we need two women that are the youngest women here, and those two, two women happen to be the ones. And I was given a flute, and the sim was given a mask. This was on November 11th, uh, 2019, right before, like one week before, in fact, before the first patient was reported with in Wuhan. The sim was given this mask, and of course, a week later, all of us start wearing masks around the world, right? That was kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, he gave me a flute, 
So he gave me a flute that's made of a conch shell, had a phoenix painted on it. The Sims mask had a thunderbird on it. And he had carried, this, this shaman had carried the mask and the flute for 40 years. Wow. And he said to me in a very intense ceremony with like burning incense and everything, he was like pointing at me in the face. I have photographs of it. It was really an amazing moment. And he said, you have to spread the knowledge from the creator or source consciousness. And the cosmic knowledge must go to you, and you have to play this flute by opening your heart and playing at all the sacred sites around the world. Wow. So I've been going to all the sacred sites around the world, the first of which was Egypt and to the Great Pyramid, which is also known as the throat chakra of Earth. And, um, and I played the flute inside the sarcophagus. Mm. So we knew that something was going to happen, that there was going to be a huge shift. We knew that the consciousness was going to change. In fact, we knew there was going to be a lockdown, and I still went to Egypt anyway because I knew when the lockdown was going to start. And we ended up leaving for Egypt, and Nassim freaked out because he's like, you can't take these 50 people with you. You guys got, you got, might get stuck in Egypt, mm-hmm. right? You've got like, you know, there's r- rumors that they're going to close the borders and stuff. And literally, we made it back exactly on time when we were supposed to come back, and the next day, they closed the borders. Insane. And the whole world shifted, right? Because of the whole world shifted. So we're now kind of in this weird, some people are calling it a time loop, right? Where everything just seems a little bit off. Have you noticed that? I kind of feel that, to be honest. Doesn't it feel like that? It feels weird, right? Everything just feels weird. And then when you ask people, and I still, I'm kind of in, I have one foot in the world of spirituality and one foot in the world of materiality. I spoke at the Vatican a few months ago, mm-hmm. and people asked me, why would you speak at the Vatican? They're so you know hypocritical and evil and all that. And it's like, well, I go to speak where people will listen. Yeah, That's just my general philosophy. If they invite me and they have a listening ear, then I'll go to speak. If not, if I think they're not going to listen, I won't waste my time. Right. They were giving me that opportunity. And the same thing with the United Nations um, at the CEO Summit. I spoke there as the keynote speaker for the last two years. Mm. <laughs> Imagine this. I got up at the CEO luncheon, right? There's all those undersecretary generals, all these people from the UN were there. And I asked the question, how many of you think that there's going to be dramatic change by way of revolutions and or wars in the next 12 months? Mm-hmm. This is only two, three months ago that I asked this question. It was right before the conflict in Israel started. Right. And, and so I said, how many of you think that? Everybody raised their hand. Wow. And then I said, let me ask you a different question. Do you believe that humanity requires so many overlords anymore? And you guys are the overlords. Mm-hmm. And it was like a provocative question. <laughs> I didn't ask them to raise their hands. <laughs> they got offended? Um, you know what? I got, I got literally inundated by questions after that. Really? Oh, yeah. As I walked off the, you know, sort of the little platform I was on, I had probably 50 people come up to me and say, wow, thank you for saying that. Hmm. And I'm sure the other people that didn't say it were probably thinking, what the did he just say? <laughs> right? So I'll go to speak where I'm asked to speak. Yeah. And, and I'm in a unique position that, you know, I'm not, I don't have fear that way. You know, I, I was, when I turned 41, I think is when I decided I'm not afraid of dying anymore. Wow. That's pretty early to accept death. That was a big deal. Yeah. Have you done that yet? I wouldn't say I've accepted it, but I, I would say I'm a bit more open to it. You know, it was a weird thing for me. I felt like I had accomplished enough in my life at that stage. I was 
I, I barely even started to accomplish anything. That's the truth of it. I had a successful career. I was CEO at, at the time. I was CEO of a big pharma company called Bausch and Lomb Surgical, mm. and um, you know a lot of people know the company. It's the second oldest company in the United States. Wow. And before that, I was president of Allergan. Young, you know, I was in my 30s when I was president of Allergan Medical. So I've had this great, interesting career that's taken me on this very unique path. Yeah. But at that point in my life, I decided, you know, I'm not going to fear death anymore. So what could I do with my life if I lived every day as if it were my last? Mm. And that was a big shift for me. So I highly encourage anyone listening to this that if you still fear death, take it in and realize that death is not something to be feared. Mm. Death is something to be embraced. In fact, I had a very funky dream last night. Yeah. Yeah, I've not talked about this with anyone yet, so <laughs> this is a first. So I had this dream, and I stayed at the Waldorf Astoria last night. Okay. Which actually is, uh, the logo of it is A-W, right? So it's like W-A. Mm-hmm. So that would be, in, in Greek writing, W is omega, the lowercase omega. So it's omega uh, alpha, mm. right? So it would be the end or death and then beginning, right? You could think of it like that. And in Hebrew, it would be called tav aleph. Also, read backwards, I'd be Aleph Tav, because Hebrew is read backwards. So I had this funky dream, and in my dream, I went to go visit this hotel that I was staying in last night. I'm walking through the lobby and everything. I go upstairs to my hotel room Mm -hmm. where I stayed last night, and the lights are all on in the room, and I'm laying on the floor, hunched over. I didn't realize it was me yet. Hunched over dead, right, or at least unconscious, and totally naked, and I flip me over, and I have this weird smile on my face, hmm. right? I mean, so it's a weird feeling when you have a dream yeah. of meeting your dead body, and you flip your body over, and you see a dead smile That's on your creepy, face, right? <laughs> That's creepy, right? Yeah. It's totally creepy. And I flipped the body over, I realized, I'm like, wow, that's me. And I kind of just sat down in my dream, and I was like, why, is, why am I smiling like that? Hmm. And then I woke up. That's interesting. And, you know, I think there's different stages that we go through, uh, different versions of ego death that we experience, right? That, and I think we are right at that precipice right now for so many people around the world. Yeah. The realization that we're not separate from everyone else, that this is a matrix of mind simulation, that mathematically I can even prove it to you, that you have a number and then your number its reciprocal value is your experience, and it's a repetition pattern. And all of this is part of what I would say is the full opening of the throat chakra. It's already been opening. Some people are now moving into higher dimensional experience, fifth dimensional experience. Yeah. Why the fifth dimension? Because it's the throat chakra is the fifth chakra. Yeah. Right? It's blue. So we've got all these people right now talking about uh, all these activation codes that are coming to Earth. I'm sure you've heard about that. You've probably heard about big solar flashes that are predicted for next year. Mm-hmm. You know, people are out buying Faraday, Faraday cages for their phones and their computers for when this flash comes and everything. What's, this a, is, what's a Faraday cage? Faraday cage blocks electromagnetic interference. Oh, God, I have like an anti-EMF chip on my phone right now. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, so basically what you need to have, that what that does is it blocks the, uh, I have one too, it blocks the EMF from going out too far away from your phone. Yeah. What you need is something to put your phone inside so that it won't get blasted Got it. And, and destroyed. And that's and, from the 5G towers? It's not from the 5G towers. There's going to be, many believe, there's going to be a big solar flare mm. that comes from the sun. Got it. So this is, uh, you know, one of these large, like, 
ejections, coronal mass ejections that come out, crown mass ejection, mm. right? That's going to come out and then like basically hit the earth. And in that process, it's like putting out a giant electromagnetic pulse. Whoa. You know, there are military weapons that are used to do just that. Yeah. To put out a big electromagnetic pulse, you can turn off all their communications. You can turn off all their stuff. If you have it inside of a copper cage or an aluminum box or some sort of, you know, quote unquote Faraday, Faraday was a physicist mm -hmm. cage, it'll block it and protect it from getting wiped Interesting. out. Interesting. So if you don't have it, then it's just going to explode? It won't explode. It'll just, it'll basically just knock out the chips. Wow. And it won't be able to be used anymore. If the If the pulse is strong enough, then you got real problems. I was once on an airplane that got hit by lightning. Flying back from Switzerland, serious? yeah, wow, and it was it was. If you've never experienced this, it's a crazy thing. We're I don't flying think through the storm us. through the Alps. <laughs> I've lived through three plane crashes, no joke. You know, people say, "Oh, I don't want to travel with Robert." And it's like, well, you know, on one hand, you could say he's unlucky because he's had three crashes that he's had to survive. Yeah. On the other hand, you could say, but he's survived three crashes. <laughs> right. So that's true. That's pretty lucky. So I'm sitting there in the aisle, and we're in this bumpy weather and everything, and all of a sudden you see the plane, all the lights go out and an arc of electricity, like a giant electrical arc, like a Tesla, mm -hmm. the pictures you've seen, just goes right down the aisle center of the plane. Wow. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> that was like a <laughs> moment. And so they're like, no worries. The pilot gets on. He's like, okay, we, we turn on our auxiliary power, right? Well, apparently they had two auxiliary backups, but we're in a bad electrical storm. Mm -hmm. So he turns on the auxiliary power. Then all of a sudden, we get hit again, and the same thing happens again like eight minutes later. Hmm. So now I'm like, what's the auxiliary for the auxiliary? He's like, <laughs> we have a second auxiliary backup power wow. generator because they have to have two levels of redundancy, Yeah. right? And he's like, okay, we have to land now because we don't have another backup power. If, if this basically gets hit again, you know, we could go down right. type of thing. And it was such a strong electromagnetic pulse, the plasma hit that it literally wiped out a lot of the stuff. Even though they had auxiliary power, a lot of stuff didn't work on the plane anymore. Wow, your phones didn't work anymore? My phones worked, but I mean, we're talking about if we have a coronal mass ejection, the type that people are talking about and have been kind of predicting for a long time now, yeah, for 2024 in particular, it will wipe out your phone, it'll wipe out your computers, it'll wipe out Dang. any type of electrical device that you have. Interesting. I want to get into the sacred geometry stuff because yep. it's a lot different from what geometry they teach in school, right? Very. Mm -hmm. So what's the main differences there? I would say it's math with meaning. Mm -hmm. So when people ask me, I remember myself, I didn't even know. I would hear about sacred geometry like 15 years ago, and I'd be like, I like geometry, but why is it sacred? <laughs> like, what makes it sacred? And And... Anyone who actually starts to truly study geometry with understanding its meaning, it changes your relationship with the entire universe. Mm -hmm. Because math without meaning is just information. But math with meaning is divine communication. Mm. Now all of a sudden you realize it's the source code of source. And you can talk to source and it can talk to you through numbers and through geometry. Mm. That is the language of the universe. And it's so beautiful and it's so perfected that it's mind boggling how perfect it can be. Hmm. You know, even something like, I'll give you an explanation of dimension. So I can prove dimension exists, right? So if I just do a basic thing you learn in eighth grade, what's called a Cartesian plane, an X axis and a Y axis, mm -hmm. right? That's simple. And then you've got a Z axis that gives it depth. 
right? I just had, I had uh, a meeting last week with uh, Teal Swan. Yeah. And Teal, I like to joke now, she kind of put the Z-axis in the hot crazy matrix. She's definitely got that <laughs> that ability. If you've ever seen the hot crazy matrix, the d- discussion about like uh, about you know which which women will be attractive in life to you and everything. Yeah, yeah. She's definitely on the hot crazy matrix, <laughs> but but also super enlightened. But she put the Z axis in there. She so had a dark aspect too. Hmm. So it's like a third dimension, right, of it. So if we think about a circle, let's say we have a circle with a radius of two. Yeah. That circle will have a unique characteristic that no other circle has. It will have a circumference and an area that will be identical. Hmm. So the area of a radius two circle would be pi r squared, right? So radius squared is four. So two squared is four. Yeah. And then pi. So its circumference becomes four pi. Its area, or sorry, its area becomes four pi. Its circumference is pi d. So you have two as its radius. You double that; it becomes four. Mm-hmm. Four pi. So you have four pi as its as its circumference, and four pi as its area. Both. This is a very unique characteristic. Mm. Now, if I put any other geometric form around that, I could put a square around it. The square will have a side length of four. And does that carry the same characteristic? It does, because a square with a side four has sixteen as its area, four squared, and then four sides times four equals 16. So you have a perimeter that's equal to its area. Hmm. So what if we do that with a pentagon? The same thing holds true. If we do it for a hexagon, you put that circle inscribed with any within any polygon infinitely, they'll, every one of those polygons will have a characteristic that will have an equal area to its perimeter. Wow. Isn't that cool? That's insane. Now check this out. What if we lengthen that radius of two to three, mm-hmm. right? Now, you might say, well, that's not going to work anymore now, right? Because the area of a circle versus its circumference with a radius 3 is not going to be equal. Here's what happens. If we put it in third dimension, right, which we then measure volume, because that would be the next way to describe a third dimensional object, yeah. then the surface area becomes equal to the volume. Wow. So the surface area is equal to the volume, and then we could put a dodecahedron around that inscribe that sphere within it, and the dodecahedron will have a surface area equal to its volume. We do it to an icosahedron, which is water and alchemy. Mm-hmm. Its surface area is equal to its volume. Then we take that radius up to four, right? So if the, 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 the radius of three defines a third dimension, right, of depth, mm-hmm. then does radius of four define the fourth dimension? And it does perfectly. <laughs> so now we have a hypercube, that has a hypervolume versus a surface volume that's equal mm-hmm. and equivalent. And this is true for any tesseract that you place around that sphere with radius of four. And it's also true if I take it to the fifth dimension, the sixth dimension. So all I have to do is just increase the radius mm-hmm. by one each time, and that will define the next parameter of the next dimension. Now, how in the heck? Now, no one knows this because we haven't published this yet. Yeah. But how in the heck can you say that there's not a architect behind it all yeah yeah people lie numbers don't it's too perfect it's too perfect all of it's too perfect so now every dimension and hyper dimension into infinity is defined by a radius value that is actually the radius that is the dimension that it defines it's insane so basically numerology is a pretty real thing then it is a hundred percent real 
and and so is astrology. Mm. All of this is part of a matrix game that we basically plunged ourselves into. <laughs> and when we go only in left brain, we literally become st- Yeah. So because you-, you cannot see these connections. You 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 become this worshiper of the almighty randomness or entropy. Yeah. And because of that, you're completely disconnected from your world, but that's the choice you made by coming here. You chose to have that experience because you wanted to wake up to your own divinity. Because who is the architect? You are. Wow. Now, did we choose that, or did are we being programmed to think like that? I believe that destiny, what we call destiny, is really just the free will of the higher self. It's you in your higher self form. Hmm. And that the reason why we're here is so that each one of us can observe the universe through our own unique eyes of perspective and perception. Right. And why does that have value? Well, think of, let's say, we like to use this term AI. I don't love the term AI because all intelligence is intelligence. Yeah. Right? So if, you know, intelligence that was made divinely, if you believe in God, I don't believe in God as one guy. I believe God is the entire universe. This entire universe is what I would call a divine source. Everything. It's not separate. Nothing about it is separate. And it's not separate from me. Mm-hmm. And if you think that the rest of the universe is divine and you're the one piece of it that is not, then that's ego. <laughs> so when you start looking at it from this different perspective, then you say, okay, geometry is this perfect language that helps me decrypt this experience that I'm meant to be experiencing through my unique eyes of perception. There's never been another Sean Kelly. There's never been and never will be another one like you. Mm-hmm. Your eyes of perspective are feeding an Akashic record of information. It's like an AI that is self-learning. It's building itself. And as it builds itself, we each of us serve the purpose through our own egos, our own unique conditioning biases and traumas and experiential learnings. Feed that Akashic record because the only way for the one, the source creator, to fully experience itself and to experience the truth is by collecting and summing all of the possible subjective perspectives that each or anyone could ever have infinitely. Wow. So now when you think about it from that standpoint, you take a step back and say, wait, so you're saying that a concept of a creator is the entire universe itself. It is a learning algorithm that divides itself into the many for the joy of perceiving itself through different eyes of perspective. But why? Mm-hmm. Because the universe is a philomath. Philomath is a lover of learning. Its existence is to expand its wisdom. It's not just logos learning. It's expanding its wisdom through the heart as well. And by balancing the brain, which is the hardest thing we can, we can honestly do, because you have to be able to get out of duality. You have to get out of perceiving right and wrong, good and bad, evil, and start recognizing I chose it all. Then the larger question is, why did I choose it? Why did I choose to have this experience? And then when you step back and have that conversation with yourself, then you realize what a beautiful matrix this actually is. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. When you when you mathematically prove we are living in a simulation, when you first found out, how did you take that news? Were you a bit upset at first? <sighs> you know, I wasn't upset. It was like, it was a beautiful thing. It was like, oh my gosh, I was finding encryptions I left for myself Hmm. through time. Because as you start to transcend duality, 
and you get into the top layer of the throat chakra. So the bottom layer of the throat chakra is self-awareness. Once you get beyond self-awareness, you get to self-actualization, where you learn how to manifest. But it's still dependent on time and your faith associated with something. If you had perfect faith, whatever argument's happening in your head is what's going to win the battle of manifestation. Mm. If your goal that you want to achieve is more powerful in your intention than the fear that you have that you won't actually achieve it, then you might achieve it. Mm. If your fear is greater, right, even at a subconscious level, then whatever you have as a stronger intention or concern or worry is going to be what gets manifested. Wow. That's crazy. But once you get into the final layer, the throat chakra, which is called self-transcendence. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you've probably heard of before. So the top layer in Maslow's hierarchy was self-actualization. So yeah, you can manifest, you can do things, you can be a good dad, you can you be a successful business person, you could be you know great in your career or an artist or whatever. But he actually wanted to go to another level. He had another level he never finished called self-transcendence. Carl Jung finished it, and he refers to it in the book he has on individuation. It's not eradication of the individual self, it is the full embodiment of the individual self. Individuation is enlightenment. And it's personified in this word he had called aeon, which is a Greek word, A-E-O-N or A-I-O-N. This new embodiment means that once you get to the stage of being able to transcend duality, then you experience time differently. You start remembering your past lives. And have you achieved that stage yet? Yes. Wow. So you remember your past lives as if they're happening right now. So you could just close your eyes and see your past lives? I don't even have to close my eyes. Wow. I can see my past lives and tap in. And what's also very interesting, the things that you learned in those other lifetimes, you can now use in this lifetime, Mm. like instantly. Amazing. You may not even know how to be a sculptor. All of a sudden, you're a sculptor. You serious? Yeah. Wow. So how many past lives have you explored so far? I've explored about 37 of my past lives. And you were able to take all those skills and apply it to your life? In large part, yes. Wow. And I'm still finding and revealing new things that I didn't even know about myself and those past lives. And all of them are connected. They're all happening right now. It's only our illusion that is persistently held, our, our desire to hold on to this notion of linear time wow. as to why we stick to this dimension of time moving the way that it is. That's fascinating. So even though some of those lives were hundreds of years ago, they're still happening right now. Yeah, that's right. They're all happening right now. So there's lives in the future that are happening right now, too. Yes. And what we consider our distant past is actually also our far future. Hmm. How so? Because time is a torus. Time is a torus that's like, a, like think of it as a sphere, like an apple shape. Right? Yeah. And it loops back on itself. I like to call it like a, a Mobius or a Klein torus. It loops back into itself. It's an involution and revolution process. Hmm. So what we think of as, you know, you know, it's easy for us to contemplate the notion of the past determining the future. Because we could say mathematically, if there's an equation for the past and the present, how could the future turn out as its infinite list of possibilities? You could take the past occurrences, multiply them or add them or multiply and add them mm. to the present to then determine the future, right? That's what you would think. Right. Like if we were going to derive an equation for it, we could. Okay. But can it work the other way? Right, So if I'm going to take a past, which is this times this and this plus this creates a future outcome, right? 
does it not work the other way? Because we all understand retro causality and this notion of causality between past and future. But what if, if there's only a causality that goes both directions, then the future must also determine the past. It cannot be, not from a physics standpoint, it cannot be from a mathematical standpoint. And even if you fire a photon into the edge of a universe that we consider to be you know, 46 billion light years across, eventually that photon will curl back on itself, come back into the torus, and loop back on itself. The universe is considered a torus. Wow. So if it loops back on itself, then are we not in cyclical time and are we not in a giant time loop mm. where everything is predetermined? Like literally everything. I used to think, oh, you know, I can make things happen and change things. It's kind of like that scene in The Matrix where Neo is out by this park bench. Yeah. And he's with, uh, he's with the Oracle. And the Oracle says, sit down, rest your feet. And he says, no, I don't want to sit down. Kind of stridently. <laughs> I think it was The Matrix Reloaded. And, and then finally, after a few minutes, he decides to sit down. And then he looks at the oracle and he says, you knew I was going to decide to sit down, didn't you? <laughs> right? Classic. Classic. So even the things that we think that we are determining right now in this moment, yeah. they're all preset. We're on a path. It's like a, a roller coaster ride that we have chosen, that we've got a menu of all the things we want to learn in this life. Yeah. Forgiveness, self-transcendence you know, go above duality. The ultimate duality is time itself. Past and future are the ultimate duality. And we have to realize that actually everything is in now. Mm. And once you can transcend this duality way of thinking and give up choosing sides and just accept what is, you know, a lot of people think that earth is, a, is an escape room that's meant to be escaped. Mm. What if the game is to learn how to fall in love with it just as it is. Mm. Interesting. So knowing that everything's predetermined, that would really mess some people's way of thinking, I feel like. And the more you fight against something, everything you judge, you'll attract. We will attract everything we judge until we no longer judge everything we attract. Mm. Our experience is the sum of all the judgments. So you've all seen it before when, when somebody you know, complains about someone else being arrogant or ego-driven. Yeah. Usually it's the mode in their own eye that they can't see because an eye can't see itself. Hmm. A knife can't cut itself. A light can illuminate itself, as Alan Watts said. This is the challenge we face. Consciousness cannot conceive of itself. So we separate ourselves into this way so that we can have other eyes of perspective and learn those perspectives in this game. Yeah. It would be like a spiritual life simulation game. And right now there's a lot of judgmental stuff on, on social media. Do you think there's a way out of this or, or are we in too deep? That is, uh, that's third dimensional type stuff, right? Third dimensional existence and fourth dimension, you're starting to get a little bit out of it. But the third dimensional aspect of it is that everything is meant to be judged. And we believe that we come here on earth to learn better judgment. I'm going to be a better business person. I'm going to be better at making good decisions, right? I'm going to make right choices so I don't go to mm. Well, when you realize that all of it's sort of preset, there's no such thing as right choices. It's just <laughs> all experiences. Wow. That is crazy. What did you choose to experience in coming to this life? And why? 
What did you want to learn? And in this world of this game, what you don't learn the first time, you will experience again. Hmm. And again, and again, and again, and again, until you finally realize, you know what? Me beating my head against this wall is only creating more wall. Mm. Yeah, that happens because when I avoid my problems, it always comes back. Isn't that true? Every time. And it, this is how we form our personas. Our personas are built on the notion of here are the things that make me feel shame, and I'm not going to be these things. I'm not going to associate with them at all, and I'll, I'll call it out on other people and deflect that I have those things as me as well. Mm-hmm. And how I feel vulnerable because we want to cover our vulnerability. Right. And this is from the oldest aspect of humanity. The moment we feel shame and vulnerability, we want to blame somebody else. Someone else's fault. Wow. Is there a level past the human form, like a higher form? Yes. And I think what happens is we go through this cycling of time and we're now going through a massive transitional phase to a higher dimensional perspective where some people will have chosen, and this is a choice, mm-hmm. will have chosen to ascend to higher dimension and experience. So when you die, you get that choice? Oh, it'll happen before you die. Oh, you, before. you could start living, if you decided and you committed yourself to the effort, and it's not a church, you don't have to pay anybody, <laughs> there's no money involved, right? Um, if you decide that you want to start living a different existence, it starts by first realizing you're not a victim that everything that happens to you doesn't just happen to you. It's happening for you. Mm. Put yourself in the shoes of the creator and start asking yourself the questions, what, what are the things that I probably needed to learn through this experience? Hmm. Why am I here? And once you start to unravel that and then you start seeing through time as well, and for people who've never experienced seeing through time, it's really hard to explain to somebody what it's like to see through time. Yeah, I've done past life therapy, but I haven't done it on my own. It's very difficult. Yeah. It's be like kind of like if we lived in the second dimensional world and an apple fell through our world, as Carl Sagan says, we'd only see slices of the apple falling through the world because it's a flat world. Right. We don't even have vocabulary to describe a depth dimension, a Z axis, right? You don't have that because how would you describe it? It's like, you know, like a Z axis, but what's a Z axis? You can't perceive it. Oh, it's beyond you. Yeah. The universal encryption of this mind simulation is so beautiful and so simple and yet can come across as inordinately complex. The most complex problems in the world can only be solved with very simple solutions. And we look in a, live in a world of reductionistic thinking where we see the complexity and actually the simplicity is, is right in front of us. The simplicity of choosing a different reality. Hmm. So you believe we're not in control, but we kind of are. You are. And when your soul and your higher self has decided for you and you, because it's the same as you, has decided for you it's your time to ascend, you will. Mm. You'll wake up one morning and you'll be like, whoa, the world is different today. And usually it's because you've made a choice to start perceiving the world differently. You can see the world is glass half empty or you can see it as glass half full if you think you can or you think you can't you will be right yeah so how did you get out of that victim mentality a lot of people are in that right now a lot of people are in that right now the world you know a lot of people think that what happens to us is just what happens to us but 90 percent of what happens to us is not really what happens to us is what we believe happens to us Mm. 
So I started realizing that a lot of the things that I had experienced through time changed their polarity. So the worst thing that ever happened to me, I got fired from a job, right? It was a very important job. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is the worst day of my life. And then a few months later, because that happened, it led to the greatest opportunity of my life. Mm. And so I look back on it, and I'm like, wow, after a few months, in a short amount of time, what was the worst thing became the best thing that ever happened to me. This is turning lead into gold. The lead of our experiences are actually the gold of our evolution. Mm. Wow. It's a great way of looking at it, man. Because people dwell on the past when bad stuff happens to them. It's not worth it. Think about it. I mean, how many times? I, I don't know anyone who hasn't ever said, oh, I've never had a time where I thought something was really terrible that didn't turn out to be better. And, you know, I, I met with uh, a world leader once, and it was a very interesting conversation. And I said to him, you know, what's as you look back on your life, what's the thing you're most proud of? He said, well, the thing I'm most proud of is I, I don't look back. <laughs> he was like in his almost 90 years old at the time. And... Um, and he said, can I give you some advice? And I said, sure. He said, be an optimist. Statues will never be erected for pessimists. Mm. There are two types of people in the world, people that believe in miracles and those that don't. Yeah. One thing I'm absolutely sure of, for people that don't believe in miracles, they will never, ever, ever experience one. That's true. They won't attract it. And even if they do experience it, they will believe it out of existence. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. I'd rather live in the context of divine. Every person you meet, every experience you have, everything that you come across can be a message from divine self. Mm -hmm. And then you, when you follow that, then you're really following your true hero's journey. And yeah. you're on the right path. And it's the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. I'm kind of feeling it with the podcast now. I really feel like I'm at a point now where I used to just work for money, but now I have a greater purpose sharing messages like this. Yeah, I watched some of your stuff before, and I definitely feel the shift in you. And I think your shift is emblematic of what's happening for many people right now. Mm. Many, many. I don't know a single person in my life, even my friends that were most reductionistic. They've all changed somehow. Wow. They've all changed. They're all going through some form of spiritual awakening. It might just be the early stages. Where yeah. They're just not calling themselves a victim anymore. I could see it, man, because even my own mother was very pessimistic growing up, but she is going through quite a change right now. You know, Have you heard the story of the two little boys on Christmas? No. We're coming up to Christmas. This is a story Ronald Reagan used to tell. They're two little boys, one very pessimistic boy, one very optimistic boy. And the parents did not know what to do with them because they're twins. They're five years old, both. And so they called a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist met with him and said, I'd like to do an experiment with them mm -hmm. on Christmas morning. So he set up one room in the house with all the best toys, like the G.I. Joe with the eagle grip and the, you know, everything that a little boy of that age could ever want, the yeah. best Lego set, all that stuff. And then he sets up, uh, he says, do you have an outhouse or a barn or something? He says, yeah, we have kind of like a, a, a barn outhouse type of a thing. It's kind of ugly and nasty. He's like, okay, I'll use that. So he uses that and fills it with horse manure. Mm. So he takes the little pessimistic boy to the room with all the great toys in it, opens the door, says, Merry Christmas. Everything you see in here is yours. And the boy burst into tears. He says, what's wrong? He says, well, I'm going to break some of these toys. My friends are going to steal these toys. <laughs> right? 
and they're not going to work for me as, as I hoped that they were going to work for me. And, you know, I might lose some of them too. So this guy's like, wow, this guy's really a pessimist. <laughs> so he takes the other little boy to the horse manure barn. Yeah. He swings open the door, and the little boy sees all the horse manure in there, and it smells. And the little boy starts jumping up and down. He's so excited. He says, he says, yay, I'm so happy. And the psychiatrist says, what are you so happy about? He goes, well, with all this manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> I can tell you right now I've lived, I'm 54 years old, I've lived enough life to have experienced both types of experiences in my life. Yeah. The people that are most successful are the optimists. Mm. They're the ones that eventually start to realize that they are in control of their destiny. Helen Keller, and, and for those that would say, well, what about all the people that... Right, that are born with major ailments and difficulties and everything. You know, those are some of the most inspiring people that have ever existed on this planet. Right. Because they very often found the way, like Helen Keller did, who was blind, who was deaf, who was a paraplegic. How did she inspire tens of millions of people? You know, by giving quotes like, the only thing worse than blindness is to have sight without vision. Yeah. It's not your circumstance. And at the end of the day, it's not how you die that matters. What matters is how we live. Love that. And no matter the circumstance that we have, and you could say, well, why would people choose to be born in difficult circumstances and everything? We don't know why their souls chose to come exactly in the way that they have, exactly experience all the things they have. And by the way, this is not an advocacy at all for being callous on all the stuff that happens in the world. You know, it's like, once I was talking to someone and they said, I know there are starving people in Africa, but are there starving people in Africa? Because it's a simulation. And I said, well, yes, there are. And our job here is not to callously run it aside and spiritually bypass it. Our job is to actually feel the empathy for it fully. Hmm. That's part of the, the heart opening. That's part of the heart chakra and full opening. And the throat becomes this bridge between the heart and the brain. Right. You know, the, the cerebral cortex uh, and the cerebellum, the cerebellum has this regulation on the ability to feel empathy in a logic way. And the heart has the thymus, which also has an ability to think. There's an SA node at the top of the heart, which is a sinoatrial node. And that's a nerve bundle that has a lot of the same kind of neuron activity as a brain does. It manages the electrical activity of the heart. So mm. the heart beats when it's supposed to beat. And what it reminds me of is this quote, when the heart thinks and when the mind feels, the river of wisdom flows. Hmm. Alignment. It's alignment. The throat chakra is the bridge that connects that. Yeah. And that's what we're going through right now. And in that last layer of self-transcendence, along with self-transcendence comes the realization that you are not separate from everyone else. Yeah. The realization that they are merely reflections of you that the things that you have judged are the things that show up in your world. You realize that there's a math equation that connects all of it. You realize also that transcending duality means that you can transcend time. The first step to being able to experience other time dimensions. Don't you find it strange that every movie these days says something about time? Pretty much. And jumping through time? Yeah. It's not a machine we need. We are the machine. Right. So time travel is right here in front of us. That's right. Yeah. You absolutely can. It's awesome. So once you start realizing that, 
And it starts with the simple of, wait a minute, all the things that I thought were antonym relationships were actually in a way just synonym relationships of differing degree. Hmm. So, you know, I started writing this out on a notebook. I'm like, humility and arrogance. Well, do I know people that claim to be so humble that they become arrogant in their humility? Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> Absolutely. And those are usually the ones that call out arrogance in everybody else. That's true. Wow. So then I started realizing all the things that I thought were opposites were not opposites at all. They were the same thing, just of differing degrees, two sides of the same coin. Wow. So there's no good and no evil. No. It's all just made up. And, and what we do, how do we make it up? We make it up based on what benefits us. Well, the movies portray it in a certain way to evoke emotion, I believe. Yeah, but I mean, I had a friend who his 11-year-old son was in a horrific terrorist attack. Mm -hmm. And he was blown up at a, you know, at this um, hotel in Sri Lanka. It was the Taj Mahal Hotel. He was the only one, the only casualty besides the suicide bomber. Wow. And, and they sent, he, my friend sent his son to Sri Lanka to see his grandmother for a week. And I was supposed to meet his son to be a mentor to his son because his son had aspirations of going to Harvard Medical School and I went to HBS and I was going to talk to him about this stuff. Well, turns out that didn't happen. Hmm. Um, he had a shrapnel, piece of shrapnel from the bomb went straight into his chest. So his father being originally an ER doc, mm -hmm. they called him up, what should we do while they were waiting for the ambulance and while he was still alive, but his chest was wide open. 11-year-old boy, totally innocent. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that story and you say, what a horrific thing, this 11-year-old boy, and you weep, and I did. I wept for hours with him when, when I learned of this. Yeah. But the family of the suicide bomber was thrilled. Hmm. Because they felt they were fighting their jihad. They felt they had no other choice than to do this because of the— and it had the main retaliation for it, the reason for it was because of the neo-Nazi guy who went in and shot 50 people in a mosque in New Zealand the year before. Right. This was in Sri Lanka, thousands of miles away. It seems like a disproportionate kind of response, but they had 300 suicide bombers that went around Sri Lanka and southern India that did that that year. How do you choose what is good and evil? The family of the people who perpetrated this heinous act laud them as heroes. Mm. Saul Alinsky is a social agitator. And what he said was, our world is not a world of angels. Rather, it is a world of angles. A world where men speak of moral principle, yet act on power principle. A world where we are always moral, and our enemies, whoever they are, are always immoral. Hmm. Yeah, it's subjective, right? Everything is subjective. Wow, there's no right or wrong. And this is kind of mind-blowing for people. It doesn't mean that you go out and you start doing a bunch of bad acts. In fact, what happens <laughs> when you really go through this process of understanding non-duality is you don't want to act out bad anymore. It's through the suppression of these aspects of ourselves that we don't like about ourselves, that we push out, and then they come out as the demons that show up in our life. Hmm. This suppression must always still exist. It's like, you know, if you remember back in high school, the girls that were like the, the wildest and craziest were usually the most religious. That's they, true. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's true. Right? It's like, get your on, right? It's yeah. that type of thing. The more you press something out of you, 
the more it will take over your life. Yep. Yeah, those helicopter parents, their kids always end up crazy. Yeah, exactly. So the point is you start to realize I accept myself. Mm -hmm. That is tantamount to being able to transcend the self in that layer. And when you do, then everything really starts to shift. And then you start to move into this new existence, which is from the crown chakra activation. I love that. We only got a couple minutes left, but I want to talk about your recent discovery with the pyramids. Sure. I think that's groundbreaking news. Mm-hmm. Could you describe what happened? Sure. So it started it's very simple. I was looking at the three pyramids on the Giza Plateau. You know the three pyramids, right? Yeah. And I looked at it from a little different angle, no pun intended. <laughs> I wanted to understand the angle of each one. So it turns out the angle is very specific on each pyramid. And it's really not subject to dispute much. The angle of the Great Pyramid is 51.85 degrees. The angle of the Caffrey Pyramid, the middle pyramid, Mm -hmm. is 53.13 degrees. And the angle of the Mankari Pyramid, the smallest one, is 51.34. And this is based on the casing stones, and they can actually measure those angles. Mm -hmm. But nobody knows why those angles exist. What does it mean? Did they all just choose to have those particular angles? Why are the proportions, dimensions, the size that they are? The pyramid builders left us very little writing. There's like no writing on the pyramid. There's one thing that's bona fide writing that looks like Paleo-Hebraic that's in the the basin stone under the chevrons on the outside of the original entrance Mm -hmm. of the Great Pyramid. But other than that, there's really nothing. Hmm. There's some paint chips that they've found and some that many people have impugned as being fake. Um, but nobody really knows, you know, why the slope angle was chosen that was chosen. Well, we solved it. Wow. And the way we solved it was a journey through music. And it was a beautiful journey because you can depict music. And I've often said that geometry is the music that we experience with our eyes. You could say that everything in life is a series of vibrations Mm -hmm. that we have different senses to perceive the ranges of that electromagnetic spectrum and the scalar spectrum as well, right? Yeah. And the ones that we can't perceive with our eyes, ears, nose, you know, and and hands and touch and all that stuff, we might have some extrasensory perceptions for, right? So giving us the sixth sense. Mm -hmm. But if you look at, you know, music then is the geometry that we experience with our ears, then you realize, and by the way, in the brain, the right side of the brain, right right here, the right temporal lobe, is the seat of music. The left temporal lobe is the seat of mathematics. Mm-hmm. So math and music are mirror opposites of each other in the brain, how we process it. And geometry is right at the center. So literally, the abstract form of music is mathematical interval. Wow. Right? So now it starts to get really deep because you go, wait a minute, is this all just about us balancing our brain? Yeah. So I then realized... Because I was asked by Donald Hoffman, who's a very, very famous um, neuroscientist. He's a cognitive neuroscientist at, U- at UCI. And he came to my office one day and he said, Robert, can you help me? I'm trying to figure out how would you, if there was a math equation for emotion, what would it be? Hmm. And I'm like, that's, well, I haven't had my coffee yet. Let me think <laughs> about that one. Like an equation for emotion? <laughs> so I get on an airplane. I'm flying to Salzburg, Austria like the music capital of the world, I started thinking, listening to some beautiful classical music on the way there, Mozart's birthplace, all that. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, wait a minute, when I'm watching a movie, and I was watching a movie at the time, it was like some romantic movie. I noticed that there was, when they were falling in love, they had a certain style of music. Right. 
And then I noticed when they broke up, before the breakup scene, there was a different shift in the music. Mm. And I'm like, this music background is entraining me to think differently or feel differently somehow. So I started looking into it more, and I found out there's research on this. That when you play a major third in music, it would be just like, da, da, like that. Mm -hmm. Then that makes people feel love. Hmm. Romantic love in particular. When you play its inverse, which is the minor sixth, which would be C to E for the major third, and then E to C, high C, it makes people feel heartbreak. Wow. So wait a minute. You're telling me then that in the musical interval is emotion? And the answer is yes. There's lots of research on this. Lots of research on it. So basically the way it works is that the musical intervals define the scale of music. Mm-hmm. And the one in the middle is the square root of two over one. That's the diminished fifth. Then you have a perfect fourth, and the perfect fifth is its inverted interval. Mm. Then you have the, uh, the major third and the minor sixth. Then you have the minor third and the major sixth. And it goes all the way out. And they always have to sum to nine. So the third must add to a sixth to come to nine. Mm-hmm. And then each one will have different polarity shifts, except for the perfect fourth and fifth, which keep the same polarity. So it's just like plus and minus. Think of it like that. So then I started thinking, well, if I were to depict this as a triangle, how could I express this interval? And I realized that it was just the height over one half the base was one of the intervals. Mm. And then for its inverted interval, it's the full base over the height. Wow. It's very simple. Very, very simple. So then I thought, okay, what would be the exact proportions of triangles that would be set, set in stone that would give us the first eight musical intervals. The Great Pyramid, the Second Pyramid, and the Third Pyramid, they all give us the exact proportions that give us that exact angle. That's crazy. So all three pyramids are musical intervals that are representing notes. So the note for the Great Pyramid is a D sharp or an E flat. But it's the note for the Caffre, it's also the doubled octave, which would be the doubling of the octave starting with A, the low, uh, you know, lower octave A and the higher octave A. So you have the ability through the duality, the separation, and it's related to the square root of two, two the, the number two gives us this separation of duality. And then it also doubles the octave. So through the suffering, we learn how to double the octave wow. to go to the next octave of experience. Then the next pyramid, Caffrey Pyramid, is the perfect fourth and perfect fifth because its height is four over three. And then its full base is six over four, which gives you three over two, which is the perfect fifth. So perfect fourth and fifth gives us stability. And then the Mankari pyramid gives us five over four relationship and eight over five. And that gives us romantic love and heartbreak. Hmm. The realization of duality. Wow. So you've uncovered the purpose of the pyramids. I believe so, yes. That's incredible. I believe it's all about spirituality. Yeah. And I believe they were built at the same time. It would have been impossibly difficult to convince someone through time to change uh, and say, no, when you build your tomb, you need to build it at 51.34 degrees, right? It's like, I can't get my, you know, my wife to agree on like a renovation inside my house. <laughs> like, how am I going to do that for like 70 years in advance? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But it's not just those pyramids because we found some of the musical intervals were missing. So then I started on the hunt for the other pyramids. Well, it turns out that there are pyramids north of Giza. Mm-hmm. 
that were discovered not long ago, like in the 50s, yeah. that people don't really know much about. They're on a place called Abu Rawash that sits 300 feet higher than the Great Pyramid. Wow. So it's on a higher elevation. This elevation has two pyramids on it. Mm-hmm. The two pyramids are two of the missing intervals. So you got all nine now? So actually, there's a total of 14 intervals. Okay. 24 if we use a 24-note quarter-tone scale. Mm. But we've, we've identified all 14 now. Amazing. Every pyramid has a different slope angle that's matching a different musical note wow. relationship. That's so cool. So I'm excited to go there. And the, the pyramids that are north of Giza are, I believe, representing the pineal gland. They both have very sharp angles. Mm-hmm. 67.4 degrees is one of them. It's the exact same one on the back of the dollar bill. No way. I have Providence, <laughs> which represents the pineal gland and wow. esoterica and the philosopher's stone. And the other pyramid, there are two shapes associated, triangular shapes associated with the Philosopher's Stone. One is an equilateral triangle. That pyramid also sits there. And the name of it is the Jed, Ephra Pyramid. Hmm. The Jed, like as in Jedi. Jedi Knights, right? Think of it like that. Mm-hmm. Jed is a reference to the, the spine and going all the way up, raising the Jed pillar, as they call it in ancient Egypt, is about getting to crown chakra enlightenment. Mm. And then that's why the Nile splits into seven tributaries in the delta that then empty into the Mediterranean. That's actually just the lotus flower of the head of this Nile that's the backbone of Osiris. And each of the temples is a different chakra along that Nile where you learn. They all have different musical notes that associate with them and are activated, we believe, with these precise musical notes. And we now know all the musical notes. And so we're going to be going there to try it out. We don't know what's going to happen. You might change the whole world. We don't know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's interesting. When you go on top of Abu Rawash and visit the Jed Pyramids, both of which are the Philosopher's Stone Pyramids, one's the Equilateral Triangle, that pyramid would have stood 600 feet high. Mm-hmm. The Great Pyramid stands 481 feet. It was the tallest building for literally all of mankind's history. Wow. Until, you know, the I think it was like the 1700s or something, that there was a building that was built taller than it. Yeah. So imagine there would have been a pyramid, and it exploded. You could see the blocks of it literally mm-hmm. littered all around, hundreds of meters radius from the center point. It exploded from the inside, but the base is still there. There's like 20 or 30 concourses that are still left of it. I climbed yeah. it, and I looked down at the Great Pyramid when I was on it, wow. and I have great video footage of it. But these two pyramids represent the pineal gland and the pituitary gland. Mm, that makes sense why it was destroyed then, because people's pineal glands are shut down right now. I actually think that this, we I don't have evidence of this yet, but the original name of the Giza area was actually called Babylon. Heard of that before. Right. So there's a whole section of Egypt today called Babylon. Yeah. That's right on the other side of Giza in Old Cairo. And... I believe that's actually the true reference to Babylon. That what we think, because we never actually found, archaeologists never truly found with absolute evidence and proof where Babylon is, and they believed it to be in Mesopotamia. I believe this building would have been by far the tallest building. Mm. 600 feet high, that's a massive building with a 60-degree pitch. Yeah, back then. I don't even know how you would build that. Yeah. I mean, think about that. 60-degree angle, Nuts. that's crazy. And, and to be 600 feet high... And it was built by, in the story, it was built by a fellow by the name of Enoch. 
I've heard Billy talk about him. Yep. And this is the Enoch that was the grandson of Noah. Mm-hmm. So who wanted to be God. And then after he built this Tower of Babel, it was destroyed because he wanted to become like God. Well, maybe that's why they're called the Jed pyramids. Yeah. But they're destroyed, and they were made of rose quartz granite, the most expensive stuff to get. The other pyramids on Giza are made of limestone. Menkari, the most holy, the smallest one, is made of granite, hmm. but it's not rose granite. The rose granite is reserved in Giza really only for the sarcophagus. It's very expensive. It's 55% quartz. Yeah. If you try to do anything to it, you'll crack it. I mean, <laughs> it's like super. And when you lay in the pyramid, you'll realize that they are giant musical instruments. Just by speaking, just by making a pitch like this. Mm, no louder than that. The entire room resonates. Wow. And it goes, wah, 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 like an engine. That's so cool. I want to do that one day. You have to try it. Yeah. You right. definitely have to do it. It will change your entire existence. But I'm excited to go bringing uh, you know, 50 intrepid souls with me, and uh, we're going to see what happens. I'll be fun. Robert, I could talk to you for hours, man, but we got to wrap up. Anything you want to close off with or promote? No. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. You know, I think uh, one of the things I will say is if you want to find my stuff, you can find me at Robert Edward Grant on Instagram, my website, robertedwardgrant.com. I also have courses and stuff and several books that I've written. Um, and then also I just launched a new platform called Orion, which is all about freeing your voice. It's the first decentralized social media uh, platform that is fully end-to-end encrypted with quantum, post-quantum cryptography, which means no government can crack it. It's all about free speech. Um, and it's unlimited in the scale of it. Love so, it. and it's decentralized. So, it will be yours to keep. It's it's your data. There's no data scrape on it. And like this, so check it out at OrionMessenger.io. Love it. I'll be hopping on there. Thanks for coming on, Robert. Thank you. Great episode. Thanks for watching, guys. As always, see you next time.